Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. So we pick up in Matthew chapter 8. Uh, we are in the middle of a section uh, that starts in chapter 4 when Jesus goes about, chapter 4, 23, um, and he goes about healing people. And with that comes a teaching, chapters 5 through 7, called the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says there's a new kingdom, a new kingdom of heaven uh, that he is here to usher in. And... Um, and after the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 8, chapter 9 are going to be things he did to not only show he had the power and authority to institute a new kingdom, but also that he has, uh, that he's going to model what that new kingdom looks like and who's going to be in it and who's not. Who are the citizens? Uh, so we see narratives interspersed with these, these accounts of miracles uh, that Matthew gives. They're not chronological. Um, Mark and Luke are chronological gospels, but Matthew's not doing that. He's trying to make an argument to the Jewish people. It's written for Jews, and it's kind of the of the four Gospels. It's the one kind of for that group of people. Um, but he is establishing his authority, and so the organization of events has a lot to do with what Matthew's trying to say with them. Uh, and the Sermon on the Mount is the message, and then these events that follow in chapter 8 kind of follow from there and conclude in chapter 9. So it starts with verse 1, chapter 8. When Jesus had come down from the mountain after his Sermon on the Mount, the great, great multitudes followed him. Uh, the teachings then uh, are, are, are those kingdom of heaven's teachings he's giving. The great multitudes here really have to do with, people are okay to hear what Jesus has to say, but there is a question about whether or not you're going to be just showing up to hear the teaching or if you're actually going to live it and do it. So what we're going to see in chapter 8 is really where that kind of gets fleshed out a little bit. Uh, through these kind of topics that he has. But he has the authority. Uh, he is a king, and he has the authority of a king, and that's important to Matthew when it comes to this topic of kingdom. But who, who, who has the opportunity to be in the kingdom? Verse 1, great multitudes. Everyone really has the opportunity to be part of it. Anybody does. And we start with you know the first character that comes under that category of anyone is a leper. Uh, so verse 2, And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you're willing you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out a hand and touched him, saying, I'm willing, be cleansed. And immediately the, his leprosy was cleansed, and Jesus said to him, see that, no one, see that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to a priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now, uh, this, this idea that, um, that a leper is, is, is gone and done, there's still lepers in the world, Leprosy is a bacterial infection. There's really no hope of healing it. Today we have some methods and treatments that help with it, um, but there's nothing that really heals it. You first lose your feeling in your, your, your fingers, and then throughout your body you lose the sense of touch. Uh, then it affects your muscles. Then it affects your tendons. It's a painful way to die. It takes 20 or 30 years to die of leprosy. Um, in, in Jewish tradition, leprosy is, you know, up there with, with dead bodies. 
uh, it, it's as close to death in life that you get. In fact, they actually had a six-foot rule. Um, you're not supposed to get within six, six foot of, of dead bodies or um, lepers, and, and, and so they would keep this distance. When lepers walked into the room, they had to yell out that they were lepers so that people could keep their six-foot rule. So they would form leper colonies outside cities in the ancient world where the leper, leprous people could, could exist, and their family members, if they wanted to, could bring them food. Otherwise, they just went there to die. Um, in the first century, it's important to note that for Matthew and Matthew's audience, leprosy was seen as a judgment from God himself. Uh, it is something that only God heals, 2 Kings 5, 7. Um, and in the Old Testament, it is always something that, that when it's presented, it's presented as something that's very close to a sin that was committed that caused that leprosy. So for then logical reasons, Jewish people felt that sin, was a, that, that sin and leprosy were very closely associated. But a leper, if you think of the person who is a leper, in that kind of a society, they're already feeling like they're dead. Their family can't come near them. They're disowned. Uh, they are isolated. They have to go off to a little colony uh, or a leper's folks home, and, and, and they're ignored and left alone to die in those places. These are people that are poor in spirit. If you go back to Matthew 5, they are meek. There's no way to not be meek when you have leprosy, and they're utterly humbled. Their life is pretty much done. And probably even some of the first century lepers would have looked at the sin in their life and been shamefully accusing themselves over and over and over again of their own sin. Um, so not necessarily that they're associated, but they would have perceived it that way. So they would have been humbled. They would have been reckoning with their own death while they were still alive in the flesh. These, this leper in verse 2 comes to worship Jesus. So he's set apart at that very point. Um, when he comes to worship, he should be within outside of arm's reach. Verse 3, however, Jesus touches him, which means he's, he's, he's closing into that six-foot rule in a way that isn't the tradition of the people at that time. The word worship there, proskinin, is, the, is only used in reference to the worship of a god in the Greek world. So he's worshiping Jesus as God, which sets him apart as a kingdom person here. So right after the Sermon on the Mount, this is the first narrative we get, and they are connected. This is intentional on Matthew's part. It says he worshipped him, and he says Lord, which is a verbal acknowledgement of who the Lord is. We're going to see that in a lot of these stories. And where the person calls them Lord and where they don't is significant. So he calls him Lord. He worships him, gives to God what is God. And, and he says, if you're willing, can you make me clean? Uh, this, this is... Uh, it's interesting in that the first person in the New Testament to call Jesus Lord is a leper. It's somebody who's laced with something that symbolizes sin in the ancient world. And that idea of, he says, Lord, he calls him king, and then he says, if you're willing, which is just like the Lord's prayer in chapter 6. He starts off with, Lord, your will be done. Um, and, and, and that idea of naming the Lord Lord and finishing with your will it is the is the simple prayer that Jesus was talking about. There's a great humility in the way that he asks here. There's a there there's a, an idea that he says, Jesus, you're Lord, and either will if you're willing to make me clean, please do it. If you're not, I'll still worship you, and you're still my Lord. And the leopard allows Jesus a choice. He doesn't come with demands. He doesn't come with expectations because he's already expecting to die. 
and he says, make me clean. The same word that gets used here for cleaning is the word that gets used for temple cleaning or spiritual cleaning of a, of a, a spiritual place. It's not necessarily a bathing or a, a reference to physical healing at all. Uh, so his request here may have nothing to do with his leprosy because he thinks his leprosy is unhealable, right, in the first century. So the request here is in response to the Sermon on the Mount, and he's just saying, make me clean on the inside because I'm going to die. But here's what Jesus does. He actually takes what may have been a spiritual request, and he makes it physical. So the inside the guy is healthy, and on the outside the guy is sick. But uh, it, it, it says, I'm willing. Uh, so in this particular case with sickness, Jesus is willing because Jesus is trying to do something here. In 2 Corinthians 12 with Paul, he has the thorn in his side. He asks uh, the Lord to remove it, and the Lord doesn't. And Paul just says, okay, your will be done. So in that sense, the leper and Paul have the same attitude towards God. If you will it, take care of it. Like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you can take this cup from me, that'd be great. And, but he still goes through with being crucified. In this case, God says, I'm willing. And he touches him. There's no need for Jesus to touch. Uh, we, we, we're going to have stories where Jesus doesn't touch someone and he heals them. He doesn't need to do it. But the, the idea that touching someone is an idea of cleanliness, it's an image for the multitude to see their teacher, their, their rabbi, touching a leper and not being corrupted by the leper, but instead the leper is cleansed by him, showing which direction this power really goes. So immediately his leprosy is cleansed. In other words, they needed CG effects to make this happen. Leprosy is a visible disease. You see it. So having it cleansed on the spot means they could see this happening. So the idea that Jesus is the living water and that he cleanses the leprosy, that it, it actually flows that direction, is just a beautiful thing that the multitudes would have seen. And then he says, tell no one. That's interesting because the multitudes just saw this, right? But Jesus is trying to, I think, control the fervor in the crowds at this point. There's a specific date for crucifixion in Daniel 9. And when Jesus is saying to some people tell and other people don't tell, um, it has something to do with the pacing of this ministry and, and accordingly doing it. Um, in this particular case, he's, well, at the end of chapter 9, he says, tell no one and people go out and tell everybody. They disobey. But in this case, there's no indication that the leper disobeys. In humility, we start out the right way. He says, tell no one but show yourself to, a, to the priest. So despite pre preaching against the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus actually invites them through a leper to go back and figure it out. Think of it this way. In, in, in priest school, there, there's a couple chapters in the Bible that deal with how to deal with leprosy when it gets healed. Yet in the entire Old Testament, there's no real account of leprosy getting healed. So I'm sure that in the first century, when they're training in young priests, they basically say, let's just skip Leviticus 14 or skim over it because it's never happened. Like in 2,000 years, this just doesn't happen. But when Jesus does this, he's actually fulfilling the law. He's making these chapters relevant for the first time in history. So in Matthew 17, when he says, I came to fulfill the law, now what we see in the action part of Matthew in chapter 8 is that he's actually fulfilling the law. So by healing a leper, you've got an instance that has never been used in the law that now becomes used. Uh, the priest would have had to go back and read the word. So as with any revival, 
it starts with reading the Word of God. It starts with knowing what God says and doing it. Uh, but the, the reference in Leviticus, Leviticus 14.2, it says, This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing, which is apparently today. He shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go forth out of the camp, and the priest shall look, and behold, same, words, same word behold there that we had at the beginning of verse 2. Behold, look at this. The plague of leprosy be healed in the leper. Um, and then, and then the, the gift that, that they're supposed to bring is in verse 4. Then, he, then the priest shall command to take for him, that is to be cleansed, two birds alive, clean, cedar wood, scarlet, hyssop, all symbolic. You can go back to Leviticus and listen to that if you want. Um, but basically, a very complex process when somebody gets healed of leprosy that has to be followed meticulously. So the priest would definitely pull out Leviticus and start reading the word. That's what they would find when they find it. And then we get these images that I think are messianic as they go through that ritual um, in Leviticus 14. There are other people with leprosy that get healed in the Old Testament. Um, Naaman in 2 Kings, Miriam in Numbers 12. Both of them get healed directly by God. And there's no documented use of Leviticus 14. But here... Jesus commands him to go to the priests and offer the offerings that's needed. And the reason he says to do it, see that right there in verse 4, is as a testimony to them. Jesus sends the leper after the Sermon on the Mount as his very first witness, and he goes first to the religious leaders of Judaism. That's the first people that are going to hear that there's somebody who just healed leprosy. So he goes to the lowest possible living human being and makes them his first witness of his work. To, and, 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 and really, don't tell the multitudes, I just want you to go straight to the priests with this. So his, his healing then would demand the reading of the Word of God, the obedience to the Word of God, and it would shatter all myths that there's things that are incurable, which Judaism in the first century definitely felt there were sins that were unforgivable, there were sins that were, there was a ranking of sins. And we actually have that image today, I think, too. But he shatters the myth that leprosy is one of those incurable situations because it just got cured. So the priests would naturally ask if they had to go back to Leviticus and they'd say, wait a second, who just did this? And how did this just happen? And they would begin to seek Jesus out, which is exactly what happens. We start to see scribes and Pharisees showing up at Jesus's ministry. Um, so verse five, now Jesus, when Jesus entered Capernaum, that's his hometown, uh, chapter four, verse 13, a centurion came to him pleading with him saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Um, so what could be worse than a leper? In, in, in the Jewish world, you could be a leper and, and Jewish, and, and, but that's not as bad as being a Roman, and much less a Roman leader, right? So there, there was a despised culture for the, the nation of Rome, the empire of Rome, who ruled over the Jews and controlled everything and taxed them heavily. So a, a great uh, hatred of the Romans. So we start with a leper, we go straight to a Roman. Uh, a centurion would have been a leader of 100 people. And a town the size of Capernaum, um, 100 people in the Roman army is a significant like force to control that town. So he would have been in charge of the town. Likely there wouldn't be more than 100 soldiers in Capernaum. It's too small of a community. Um, but the centurion noticed... Matthew's not, um, he's not accidental in how he words things. He's really intentional. And notice how he words this. The centurion uh, came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord. Those three things set this Roman apart significantly. 
Um, he's breaking some rules, right? Just like the leper did. Centurions are presented throughout the Bible generally as being fairly honorable men, at least what we see of them. Um, it, 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 to have Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, they needed strong leaders. And one of the things Rome did that was unique from other ancient cultures is they didn't just raise up their own kids as leaders. It wasn't necessarily hierarchical. If someone distinguished themselves in, in, in battle, those were the people they rose up to leadership, people that were men of action, that knew how to get things done, and they put people in charge that were actually merit-based. And this is part of what made Rome an empire that lasted 800 years. So typically speaking, when a Roman centurion had a servant that got sick, they would just kill the servant and go down to the slave market and buy a new one, right? It was like when your vacuum cleaner breaks. So when we see this centurion being concerned about his servant, we have a different kind of guy here, a guy of honor at some level. And it says he came to him um, and, and pleaded with him and said, Lord, uh, this is humility being exhibited in a Roman soldier that just doesn't happen in the first century. This is truly unique. In fact, this is a miracle, right? Because in a few different ways, this centurion just gave up his job. First of all, he shouldn't be going to the religious leaders. He should be sending one of his 100 men or another servant to go do that. Second, pleading with him. Romans didn't plead. <laughs> that is not the Roman Empire. They didn't act that way. They didn't even think that way. They demanded and they commanded, and it's part of how Rome operated. And then last to say, Lord, that's a title <laughs> that anyone in authority over him as a Roman centurion would remove him from office and probably execute him because the only one who gets called Lord is Caesar, right? Or someone who's above you in the chain. So to go to a Jewish teacher, a carpenter, and call him Lord is to completely flip the Roman authority structures completely. So he's not talking to uh, the, the general. He's not talking to his Caesar. He's talking to a Roman carpenter or a Jewish carpenter. And Jesus says to him, really simply, I will come and heal him. The willingness of Jesus to connect, he touches the leper and now he's going to enter a Gentile home. Both of these are against the customs of the, of the Pharisees. And in chapter 9, we're going to see that gets to be a bigger and bigger deal. Because as he breaks each of these not Bible-based traditions, the Pharisees are going to get more and more angry because they're, he's ignoring the traditions they've constructed around Judaism. And the centurion answers in verse 8, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. Because I'm a, before I'm a man of authority, under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and I say to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. So again, the humility that he shows here is going to be consistent with everyone who gets healed. There's a humility Lord, your will, not mine. If you want to heal, great. If you don't want, but you're my Lord and you're my master and I worship you regardless. So when he says, I'm not worthy, he has seen and heard what Jesus has done. As a centurion of Capernaum, he probably heard the whole Sermon on the Mount. Because if there's a bunch of Jewish people gathering, the Romans want to know what's going on. So he would have heard the whole thing. And something struck a chord with him when he heard that, that he said, okay, this is my Lord. I get this. This guy speaks with authority, right? And knowing what authority is, and he says, for I'm a man under authority and I have soldiers under me. People that are good leaders know what it's like to follow and they know what it's like to, to guide people. And frankly, the attitude of care that's required in a good leader, even a good Roman leader, 
is that you care for your, the people under you and you care for their well-being and you want them to be healthy because they give you what you need to do your job to complete the, author the, the, the mandates you have from the people over you. So this understanding makes Jesus marvel in verse 10. When Jesus heard it, he marveled. We're going to see the word marveled again in this chapter. Uh, Matthew uses it to help bookend the whole chapter. And he marvels and he says to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Like, not even the Jewish people understand what he understands here. He gets what authority is. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. He's basically saying there's going to be people that aren't Calvary Chapel that go to heaven, right? And to the Jewish people where they're so resolute that they know the word of God, that they carry the word of God from Abraham forward, that they're the ones that are going to the kingdom of heaven and nobody else gets allowed, their hatred of the Romans just got thrown underfoot in verse 11. There's going to be Romans that get to heaven. Verse 12, but the sons of this kingdom, Israel, will be cast into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way. As you've believed, so let it be done to you. And his servant was healed the same hour. Man, that idea about what we spend our time on, and even for an earthly nation, um, God sees to his people. And great faith is less about worrying and straining and pushing your faith out like I need more faith so I'm just going to work at it you don't re you don't work into faith you relax into faith think about it if I go to sit down on a chair I don't strain hard with my head to make sure the chair will hold me up if I really have faith there's no strain involved in it I just sit and I trust that the chair will hold me that's faith in a chair but when we flip that to God, we don't stress about life. We don't stress about these problems. And the centurion clearly has a problem. His servant is ill. But he's not going to strain about it. He's going to go to the proper authority, ask for it to be taken care of. And the proper authority says, yeah, I'm willing to do that. Um, let me go to your house. And he's like, you don't need to come to my house. If you say it's done, I know that in the spiritual world, you're in control. I can see that because I heard what you said and I believe what you said. How much more for this great faith that he has should we be the same way, right? So many are going to come down and, and sit down, which is resting physically, with Abraham, which is resting spiritually. There's an amazing fellowship that's going to be there in heaven. Contrasted with hell, which is outer darkness, weeping and gnashing, which seems to be a lot more work, right? In heaven we sit down, in hell there's weeping and gnashing. But we can create our own hell on earth when we don't trust that Jesus has it under control. When we stress about things like sickness and death and, and, and our future and, and our preparations for the thing that's coming, all we do is create a hell for ourselves that has to do with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping having to do with being sad or suffering over something and gnashing having to do with anger, worry, or, or, or despair over something, right? Either way, we're not trusting in the Lord. We're either upset about what's happening or we're worried about what's going to happen. And this is emphatic. These two words that, he, that Jesus uses, in the Greek, there's actually a the in front of each one of them. So it, it should properly read, and, and, and I don't know if your version has this, it should properly read the weeping and the gnashing. Like it's a thing, a capital G gnashing, right? 
that there, there will be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. This is what happens to people that don't trust in the Lord. If you trust in yourself, you're going to be let down. If you trust in others, you're going to get angry. And there, the emphatic version of this shows me that Jesus isn't afraid to talk about hell, even as a motivator to people around him. And we shouldn't be afraid to talk about hell either. It's true. So if there is a hell, don't we want to warn people about it so that they can avoid it? Um, but we see a, a, a people today that are really hesitant to talk about the fact that, that there will be people that don't get into heaven. And, and, and what nation you're from has nothing to do with it. What church you go to has nothing to do with it. Your relationship with Jesus and your trust in Jesus have everything to do with it. Uh, Charles Spurgeon has this great uh, story. I once heard of a minister who, who once said to his congregation, if you do not love the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be sent to that place which is not polite to mention. He ought not to have been allowed to preach again, I'm sure, if he could not use plain words. If we can't even say the word hell, and we can't talk about hell, we have no business talk, speaking for Jesus because Jesus talks about it, right? Outer darkness, it's not a nice term. So the only reason anyone would be uncomfortable to talk about hell is if you're reminded of your slide towards it, right? That's your path. If we're saved from that path, we don't have anything to fear in talking about it. So what could be worse in, 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 so we get three characters here. We get a leper, we get a Roman, and we get, yes, we get a mother-in-law. So um, as much as we love our mother-in-laws, um, you can see a joke there if you want to. I would never, of course, make that joke. But in verse 14, it says, Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand, and her fever left her, and she arose and served them. I love how in Matthew, in, in two lines, can tell a whole story. Think of the power of the writing here. Have you ever seen writing like this anywhere? So mother-in-laws don't generally stay with their son-in-laws. They generally stay with the, uh, the, the patriarchy that, that they're married to. They, so they would stay with their own sons and their own family. In this case, she's staying with Peter, which actually says a lot about Peter. And one of the comparable characters in the Bible of a man who takes in both a wife and her mother is Boaz, back in the story of Ruth. So this puts Peter up in the same category as Boaz just by the fact that he's taking care of people. Also contrast this later with, with Jesus critiquing the Pharisees for not taking care of their parents. But from his own disciples, they, they take care of their parents. Um, but I don't, that's not the point of this. Like I, It's just a glimpse we see into Peter's life. The point is that he touched her hand. So he touches the leper. He doesn't touch the Gentile Roman. And here there's this sweet image of care and affection. So it's not just Peter's mother-in-law, it's Jesus's friend's mother-in-law. Like there's a love, there's a care and affection that's indicated in the language here. Um, there's no indication that the mom has faith or asked Jesus for anything. So it, the, the leper asks for help, the centurion asks for help for somebody else, and in this example we have a, 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 a fevered woman who doesn't ask for anything. Jesus heals in all three. In other words, Jesus can or cannot heal whenever he feels like it. When God chooses to do healing, it has nothing to do with the degree to which we make the request. Understand that. When we go to hospitals or pray for each other when we're sick, let's understand that. Let's understand that it's not the fervency of our prayer that makes a difference at all when it comes to if God's going to do something or not. What matters is that our humility when we come before him and our heart before God and our desire to see God's will be done. So the fever left her. That's an interesting phrase I want to pull out. Where did the fever go? Is the fever a thing 
that happens, that moves places. So in the first century, fevers were often treated as a presence or an affliction, sometime even with the connotation of a, a demon possession. Um, but we see throughout Matthew that he distinguishes between fevers and demon. That, like, that's not the case here. He knows the difference. He's, he's not ignorant of that. But in verse, um, in verse 15, it says the fever left her. In verse 17, it says he took. Do you see that? So this is, this is an idea that there is something about sickness and that there is an energy or a force that's there, biblically speaking, that's dealt with. We, today we know viruses. We know a lot more about the science of it. Um, but in this case, it seems to be that it was more than just a high fever, right? Um, because there's a miraculous contrast that gets drawn here. She instantly has energy and strength when the fever leaves her, implying that the fever was something that was not just like a virus, right? She arose and served, which I love this. I, we all know people like this, right? We, just these wonderful people that have a heart of service. And if they're not laid up with a fever, they're serving people and that's their heart. So in this story, we see the humility of the person healed after the healing happens, right? With the leper and the Roman, we saw that humility up front. But here Jesus knows the heart and he, and he heals all three because of their hearts, right? And now we get to a demon-possessed person, verse 16. When evening had come, they brought him many who were demon possessed, and he cast out spirits with a word, all who who were all and healed all who were sick. Now we're going to get a lot more detail on the demon possession at the end of the chapter, and then we'll get in chapter nine. We'll get another example where Matthew's saying something slightly different. Here, I think the point is is that Jesus healed everything with equal ease and total authority. Demon possession was something that Josephus re reported. Josephus is a Roman historian. And he reported that under Greek rule, the Israelites got hooked on Greek magic from pagan uh, gods and temples. And that that fascination with Greek magic, kind of like, uh, you know, just they may have seen it as fairy stories, but they got into it. They started having like Greek magic conventions and dressing up like their favorite Greek characters. It became a fad and it was seen as just a hobby or something. But along with that hobby, across the... Palestinian world that in the first century, Josephus reports that demon possession or diamond idzomai to be powered by a demon was an absolute plague on the land. So you're going to notice a couple things as we go through the Gospels. One is that there seems to be a lot of demon-possessed people around, and that's confirmed by secular historians. There were a lot of demon-possessed people in the Middle East in the first century, I think because the enemy knew that that's where the Messiah was going to show up. Right, so there's there's a battle that's going on. The second thing is you're going to see there's a lot of blind people, and and largely for other reasons. But it seems like the world was not as nice a place. So the idea here that that Jesus um, that were brought to him many who were demon possessed, and he cast the spirits out. And notice that Matthew says with a word. With the leper, it just says, yeah, I'm willing, and and you're cleansed. And with, with the Roman person, he's like, well, let me come to your house. And, and he says, no, 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 if you will it, it's done. And, 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 it, and it is. And, and with the story with the mother-in-law, and I think this is G Matthew's point here, he just touches her hand in verse 15, and the fever left her. He didn't say anything. So the casting out of spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, Matthew has just shown us three examples. Of, for Jesus, this was nothing. This was total and complete power and authority over physical infirmities. 
and in, in verse 16, even spiritual infirmities. There was nothing about the outside physical body that Jesus didn't have power and control over. So their outsides were sick, but their insides were humble and obedient to God and willing to serve. And Jesus took care of the outsides easily with a word, no problem. Leprosy, no problem. Fevers, no problem. They all just come out. And he says, all that were sick. So this is kind of a summative idea here. And then we get to the middle of the chapter, all right? And, I, and, and Matthew's setting this up constructively. Everything before this middle point that he makes has to do with physical infirmities. And I do think there's a chiastic form with chapter 8, that, that these, these things parallel each other. And we see that in words like marveled, right? We, there's, there's a pairing or an arching that comes to the middle part of the chapter. And here's the middle of the chapter that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Isaiah the prophet saying, uh, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflictive. Isaiah 53, where this comes from, is absolutely messianic. So to think that there might be some obscure... No, Matthew's saying this is the Messiah. That, that's what he's saying. It's what he meant to say. It's what his readers would have heard. Matthew doesn't want us to miss that this healing of people is what the Messiah was supposed to do. This is the prediction of what was supposed to happen. The blind are supposed to see. The deaf are supposed to hear. That's supposed to happen. And Matthew's saying, look, it happened. So then we see that Jesus starts dealing with people that on the outside look all healthy and ready to go, but on the inside, something's wrong. So the second half of the chapter deals with the spiritual sickness. Verse 18, look at how this flips. And when Jesus saw great multitudes around him, he saw great multitudes at the beginning of the chapter, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Okay, so the idea of a command, right? Disciples obey. That's what disciples do. So this is the kingdom. It's not just you like to hear the words of Jesus and do you, you put them up on your bathroom mirror and read them every day. It's do you actually obey them, right? You're not a disciple if you don't follow and obey. You can hear without following, and that's what we're going to get into. So what Jesus does is the opposite of, um, of an invitation here. <laughs> um, so he gives a command, and this is how people respond to the command. Uh, verse one or verse 19, then a certain scribe came and said to him, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. It's total enthusiasm. And Jesus says to him, foxes have holes, birds have air, have, of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. You know what? I'm going to go away and we're going to cross the Sea of Galilee and we're going to go to another town called Gersessenes and we're going to go to a graveyard. And you know what? I don't even have a place to sleep over there. I, I haven't I don't have my hotels.com up. I haven't figured out my reservations. Are you okay with that, Mr. Scribe? So the role of scribe in verse 19 is important. Scribes would have been upper class, wealthy. They're the people that knew how to read and write. So that in the Roman Empire, they're the ones that kept the records. They're the ones that made all the money. So we see two types of people that don't obey when given a command, right? And this one, verbally in verse 19, it looks like he wants to obey. I'll follow you wherever you go. So he's maybe making a hasty decision, and then the second example is going to be a reluctant person. So those are the two of the reactions that people have when they hear the words of God. Just got done with the Sermon on the Mount. Some people hastily, enthusiastically are, oh, I think that's just the, that just blew my mind. That's the greatest thing in the world. This is awesome. This is awesome. And then you never see them again. 
because there's a cost to being faithful and showing up and being obedient. So this well-to-do scribe um, is one of the people that Jesus says doesn't get it, Matthew 5.20. Um, this is, this is here, Luke says here, in Luke 9, says someone here. Matthew says scribe. It's likely that Matthew knew the person because they come from the same part of the world and they would have ran in the same circles. The scribes and the tax collectors would have known each other. So the fact that Matthew has a little more detail here is historically accurate, um, but it is not necessarily um, the same situation that, that, that uh, it's not necessarily written in the same way. I'm sorry, I went off track there a little bit. So we get the scribe, goes off and gets caught up in the excitement. Matthew calls them a scribe. He knows who probably, he knows their identity, but he kindly leaves it out probably to be nice. Uh, and, but the point here is that he came with this enthusiasm, right? I'll follow you wherever you go, which is a verbal profession, which is of faith, which is a verbal commitment. It's a vow. He just made a vow because he said something with his mouth. And then he gets this word from Jesus. And the word son of man is, is Daniel 7.13 is clearly messianic. There's a title here. Um, only Jesus is called the son of man throughout the New Testament. Like it's his title, Right. And to say that the Son of Man, the messianic messenger of God that will save the world and become our high priest and king, doesn't have a place to sleep tonight, implies the scribe thought he was going for an upgrade or a promotion. <clears throat> if I follow Jesus now, I'll be one of his top leaders later. Because he's going to be king. He's going to conquer the Romans and take over this area and be our eternal king forever. Because he's Messiah. But when he says Messiah has no place to lay his head, you know what, I don't have a place to sleep tonight. Jesus saying to him, this isn't a worldly promotion for you, right? I don't have posh digs, right? And in Matthew 6, 19, he said, don't seek after treasures. And that's exactly what scribes do. So he's taking an example of a vow and he's not counting the cost. This is a guy who's all talk. He's rash. He's not willing to make any sacrifices for what he just vowed. And, 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 he's, and there's no mention of whether or not he follows Jesus or not. It's just that this is how Jesus responded to that thoughtless enthusiasm, right? And so when there's great multitudes and he gives a command, there's people like this and then there's people like this. Verse 21, then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me go and bury my father. So this is one of the people that calls him a disciple. He's one of the people that says, I'm going to follow you, Lord. And he basically says, hey, can you wait before we take this day trip? I, I got to take care of my dad. In fact, in the Greek, the bury my father there, it doesn't necessarily mean that that person's dead. It, it means that they need to be cared for or that they're in their older years and they're headed towards burial. So they can't take care of themselves. So it's basically, I, I have a dad I got to take care of. Now, that's an odd thing to say when this is kind of just a day trip, right? So uh, they don't know how long they'll be across the thing, but he just gave a command. It says, he gave a command to depart. We're going to go to the other side. My disciples are going to come with me. So this is somebody who calls himself a disciple, but he says, I can't go with you because i got to take care of these other things. This is a tough passage. This is a confusing passage. I'm going to argue that it is a contrast to the enthusiasm of verse 19 that what we have is somebody dragging their feet in verse 22. And those are the two kinds of reactions you get that are not disciple reactions. And Jesus' response there is... Uh, um, um, Jesus says to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. I've given a command. 
So either you serve God or you serve man. You either serve your dad or you serve me. And, he, and, he, and so he's backing up what he just said on the Sermon on the Mount. The, the confusing part for people on this is that then you have entire religious sects that make this a legalistic tradition by taking this out of context. And then they say, well, we don't want to bury our dead. We're going to cremate everybody or something to that effect. God's people still bury their dead. They still go to funerals. God's people still go to college. God's people still serve in civic areas. God's people do a lot of these things because God's told them to do those things. But when God gives a command to go do this other thing, we have to trust that this guy's dad would be taken care of, that there'd be that, that Jesus wouldn't tell us to abandon our duties. This is actually what it critiques the Pharisees over later. So the point here, I think, if we want to understand this passage, is that it, it, it isn't that the point is not that we don't care about family. In fact, in verses 14 and 15, we just saw Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. He took care of Peter's mom because Peter could have said the same thing. Let me go bury my mom. Let me go take care of my mom. So Jesus clearly is not saying abandon your family when he just got done taking care of family, right? But there's always a reason to put off following Jesus because this life demands a lot from us. In this life, we're busy. In this life, we have papers to write. In this life, we have deadlines. In, in this life, we have clients we have to take care of. In this life, there's just always something that gets in the way of a direct command of God. And the day you say, I'll follow Jesus, is you are very close to a moment when those two things are going to come into conflict with each other. And you can't serve both two masters. You serve one or the other. So when you combine the idea of foxes having holes, you're not going to get rich following Jesus. And the idea of let the dead bury the dead, you're going to have things you have to say no to in life. Jesus, we see, knows the hearts of the people asking him things, right? For a scribe, they would have loved nice clothes. And, 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 and we see here that that's, you know, the idea that birds have clothing in Matthew 6.26. He knew who he was talking to. He knew that the scribe was used to money. He was used to fluffy pillows, and now he doesn't have them. So Jesus seems to do the opposite of inviting people to be with him. He's actually pushing people with bad hearts away from him. This is an interesting idea, especially in a church where we say we don't want anyone to ever feel uncomfortable in our church. Oh, okay, but shouldn't, isn't conviction the godly word for uncomfortable, uh, what the world uses? So disciples of Jesus aren't born out of lies. Disciples of Jesus are born in the truth. And sometimes that truth is you're a scribe and, and you're, you're too worried about primping yourself to come and follow Jesus where you may not have as much money and wealth. Or, you know what, you're so concerned about what's going on with your dad, but I'm the Lord. I know if your dad's going to, you know, what's going to happen there. So you're, you're comparing discipleship with things that Jesus is pointing out. There's a narrow path here, right? Somewhere between hyper unthinking enthusiasm and worrying and being anxious about the things of this world. And, and in chapter 624, the idea of you can't live for both. Jesus has to come first. When Jesus comes first, all those other things will get taken care of too. You're, you know, in the same way that Jesus took care of Peter's mom. So when he says, when, when the second person says, Lord, let me first, think about that phrasing a little bit. He's calling Jesus Lord, which means I follow your commands. And then he says, let me first. So 
he's putting himself first instead of God. And that's essentially the contradiction that, I, that Matthew, I think, is bringing out here. Many say this person didn't follow Jesus, but it doesn't say that he didn't follow Jesus, and it doesn't say that Luke 9 doesn't say that he didn't follow Jesus. There's nothing biblically that says that these two people didn't ultimately follow Jesus. In fact, the scribe could have been Matthew, right? That's how he could have described himself. And this, this person with hesitation could have been Thomas, right? So the place we got these stories might actually be disciples, but Jesus' way of recruiting was to start them off in truth. In truth, you've got some things in your heart that need fixing. So let me address those first. Here's the point. Jesus said truthful things that convicted people. Don't rush and make a decision too fast. Don't wait and make a decision too slow. There's a narrow path, uh, chapter 7, verse 14. So people... Outside of following the life and the, the love and the light of Jesus are walking dead people. And we get that image. Jesus uses strong language here. All other people outside of following Jesus, they're spiritually dead people. And, and, and in chapter 12, Jesus is going to prioritize this idea of fellowship and this idea of he's going to model it, right? Um, it, when, he, when he knows he's going to die, he asks John to take care of his mom. But going to die is the first priority. So he's going to die on a cross, but he makes sure his mom gets taken care of. Family is very important to the Lord, and there's no mistaking that. In this particular situation, he just gave a command. The command was basically give up your afternoon and come over to this graveyard with me and hang out with, de with, with demon-possessed people. That's the command. He's not saying, you know, abandon your dad to death on some curb or something dumb like that. But there's this command we're going to get in the boat. And in verse 23, now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. So Matthew's laying that down. This is a fishing economy. Galilee had boats all around it. We just went from the beginning of the chapter, we just went from multitudes to the a number of people that would actually fit in a boat. So narrow is the path, but wide is the way that leads to destruction. When it comes to enthusiastic people that don't get in the boat and worried people that don't get in the boat, you got a lot of people that don't get in the boat. Very few people follow Jesus and get in the boat. You know, for me, this leads to a question of, am I willing to get in the boat or not? Is there anything in this world I'm clinging to so tightly that it's going to stop me from obeying Jesus' commands? And the answer has to be, for a disciple of Jesus, it has to be no. And people say, well, it's easy for you. You're, 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 you're a Bible teacher. And so, yeah, I'm a Bible teacher with a full-time job, and I have been for four years. Like, either you make a decision to follow the Lord or you don't. And very few actually follow. But the ministry that we have, and we're going to see at the end of chapter 9, there's a harvest out there that we have to take on. And getting in the boat is part of that harvest. It's part of what we do. So suddenly they get in the boat, his disciples follow him, and now what happens with the disciples? Verse 24, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with, with the waves, but he was asleep. And then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're perishing. They're worried. And he said, but he said to them, why are you fearful, you, O you of little faith? And then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm, a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, see how we're bookending with the word marvel? The men marveled, saying, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? This guy has authority. So these are experienced fishermen. We know at least four of them are experienced fishermen that just got in the boat. So when it says a great tempest, they've seen tempests before. 
when it says the boat was covered, they've seen like waves, but not ones covering the boat. And then it says we are perishing. These are experienced fishermen that recognize they're in a storm that seems to be a little more than the normal storm. This is supernatural. Galilee's not that big of a lake, right? So to have these kinds of waves, these kinds of storms, Galilee itself has windstorms that, that make it so you can't fish. And it can be a very dangerous place. There's lots of uh, boats at the bottom of Galilee. So the idea that there'd be a big storm is not uncommon. The idea that it would come on them so suddenly, verse 24, that's what's uncommon here. Now, Jesus just got saying in, in chapter 6, verse 25, Therefore I say to you, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, nor about your body or what you'll put on. Right? Don't worry about that stuff. So the other thing that's you know comical in contrast here is that Jesus is sleeping. Like they came to him and awoke him. It, to, to awake him there is to wake somebody up from sleep. It's the right word. So it's even comical in the contrast. Jesus is carefree. They're careful. And all they can think about is the fact that these waves are everywhere. And I've heard great sermons on this. The waves of life, the, all of that. It's just one, you can do whole sermons on this concept. There's one idea here, though, that Jesus was asleep. And to the core of his being, he wasn't concerned with the storm. Why? Because he knew that God had something planned for him. The storm wasn't going to be his end. Paul gets into a storm and he's preaching to the sailors while it happens, right? And he's trying to, you know, tell them how it's going to be. Jonah gets in the storm and they throw him out to the fish. It's all part of God's plan. There's plenty of examples of where storms get used to advance God's kingdom. And they go to, they go to Jesus and say, Lord, save us, we're perishing. That's a totally selfish appeal to life. And it's not what he just got them te done teaching them on the Sermon on the Mount. So again, Matthew takes these stories to show us what he was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew 6.10 says, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if God's will is for them to die in a storm, then I guess it's God's will. It doesn't mean go out and put yourself in foolish, dangerous situations. That's testing the Lord God. We saw that back during the temptations. But there is still a choice that we make in any situation on if this is for God's glory or if this is not for God's glory. He says, why are you fearful? That's a rhetorical question. And then he says, oh, you of little faith. This is a great contrast here. Contrasts with the centurion early in the story, right? With the centurion, he said, oh, you, look, I've never seen such great faith, right? What an amazing faith. Here he uses a different term, <laughs> Oligopistos, right, is the opposite of what he said about the centurion. He, the centurion had great faith. These guys have what's called, it's almost a nickname, little persuasion or baby faith. So the centurion has grown-up big person faith, and the disciples have baby faith. Think of the contrast. These are the people that got in the boat. These are the narrow few, and even they have just baby faith. They're just figuring it out. The difference between a person of faith and a person of baby faith is the degree of worry that we have in our life. It's just that simple. So he rebukes them. This is the first word, use of the word rebuke. It means uh, epistemao or something. To, that's with a Minnesota accent. To ch it means to tax or charge something. So when we rebuke someone, we're charging them with an idea, and it has a, a, a sharp implication. It's to charge with authority. So he's acting as someone with authority, which is what the centurion recognized he had, 
and, the, and his baby disciples don't recognize it, his baby faithers. So a sharp rebuke is generally something that someone with authority gives over someone who doesn't have authority. We're later told, and I won't do a whole Bible study on this, but this happens in the church, that there are people that are big people faithers that talk to baby faithers, and they're dealing directly with that anxiety and that worry, and they're saying, knock it off. Get to work. Turn around. Stop sinning. Don't worry about the storms. Knock it off. Give it to the Lord and let it go. And when you do, the language here is wonderful. Matthew uses it, great calm. Great is an overused word in the English, but in the Greek, it's still a word we recognize, mega, <laughs> right? It's mega calm. It is a calm that goes far beyond uh, the normal calm on a sea. This would be a waveless, glassy sea right after a abnormally strong storm. The contrast between the storm and the calm are clearly a miracle. The contrast going from one to the other that quickly is more than just Galilean storms, right? I've heard the naturalistic explanation. No, I don't read that here. I hear that Jesus stopped the storm with total authority, which is exactly what Matthew's talking about that Christ has authority. So the men marveled, saying, who can this be, that even the winds and the sea obey him? The point here is authority. Matthew makes sure we don't miss that point. Look, behold, look at what Jesus does. Matthew's a brilliant writer. There's an obvious rhetorical question that's given here. Who can this be? Who can it be? Um, it's an obvious answer. He's the Messiah. We've gotten that, right? We got that from chapter 1. He's God incarnate. He's the heavenly king. He's the authority that the centurion rest recognized. Um, and, and he marveled. The word is th thamazo, uh, where we, the root for where we actually get marvel from. The centurion marveled, and now the disciples marvel. The centurion marveled at a man of total authority in his great faith, tosotos pistos. And here the disciples marvel at a man of total authority, even from their baby faith, oligopistos, and both of them are people of faith. So it doesn't matter how big or small your faith is, some of us just need more instruction. And when is the next word in verse 28? We jump right into the next story. When he'd come to the other side, to the country of Gergesenes, that's not a different country, it's still in the Roman province. It's really a city in the region around it, right? Uh, it means a stranger draws near. Uh, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to dement us before the time? <laughs> we get, like, an image. To be called the Son of God, right? And to be called that man of God, um, Son of Man, these titles that get thrown at Jesus, we can call Jesus Lord, but not mean it, right? So clearly, when we say Lord, but me first, that's not a Lord. We're not talking about the relationship Jesus is talking about. That's not kingdom of God talk. And here we got demon-possessed people calling him the right names. So, But the, clearly they're not kingdom demons, right? Um, th that's not what's happening here. And we have to understand that with some maturity so we don't pull things out of context, right? So Gergesenes would have been a Gentile prominent town. There would have been Jews living there. It's still part of the region. But there would have been a lot of Gentiles. 
Uh, we know that because their graveyard is right next to the town, clearly. We know that because they have a herd of swine. Uh, pigs are not kosher food. They shouldn't. Jewish people wouldn't have herds of them. Uh, they don't have a, a law here that's really being practiced. We don't see Pharisees at all in this town. Um, so it's probably an entire town influenced by paganism to the point where there's not even, maybe not even a synagogue here. There's no religious leadership that shows up. So this is free reign for paganism. And what do you get when you have free reign paganism? You get, uh, you get demonic possessed people and you get this rise in demon possession. So in John 4, Mark 5, uh, we see that Je Jesus purposely goes into this town. He's intentional about it. We see it here too. Uh, in 1857, they did. Uh, the archaeologists have found a massive graveyard in this part of the world. They don't know if it's the same one, but this was a town of people in the first century that had an uncommonly large graveyard, like New Orleans, right? They're known for this thing. And these people coming out of the tombs means they had demon-possessed people living in the graveyard. So this is full-on Halloween horror movie stuff. Um, and they come out of those tombs, uh, which tells us something about demons. They love death. Um, and we, we see that they're, this is the kind of fruit that they bear in their life, is that the following the enemy just leads to death. It leads to the graveyard. This is the fruit they have. So there, there is a qualifier here that's different than we saw back in verse 16. Here the qualifier is that demon-possessed people are fierce. So the enemy loves to use chaos, shouting, and noise. He doesn't always make people mute like in chapter 9. We're going to see that. Sometimes the demon loves this chaos, this fear, this yelling and screaming. Verse 29, they cried out. They love this stuff. That kind of chaos and, and it rattles good, decent people, right? And then the enemy knows that. And notice also a couple little things here. It says they there met him. So the demons could have hidden out, but they're blocking the road because they believe that graveyard is their territory, that they own sin and death right? So they're screaming. It's likely late afternoon, might even be nighttime. Like Jesus is bringing his disciples into a space that would have terrified a good Jewish person, right? It's Gentile. They got herds of pigs. They got graveyards. They got dead people. These are all things that good Jewish people shouldn't be anywhere near. And he just got done touching a leper. So they had to be thinking like, do I really want to follow this Jesus guy? In Mark 5, we see that the he Mark only talks about one of these two demon-possessed men, and the one that he talks about had a demon called Legion in him. So we see that if you want to read more detail, Mark 5 has it. Interestingly here, Matthew has less detail, and that's not common, like between Mark and Matthew. Usually Matthew's the one with a little more detail. Uh, but in this case, that's not the, the point for Matthew isn't the name of the demon or what, all that. The point here is that how this contact, contrasts with leprosy. And we see the structure of these two stories, again, in chiastic form, one at the beginning of the chapter, one at the end of the chapter, really playing off each other in some interesting ways. Um, so they do a lot of things um, that demons do. They make a lot of noise. They try to block the work of God. They try to block their progress, uh, saying no one could pass this way. And then they ask this question, what have we to do with you, Jesus, Son of God? Interesting that demons know God's name. They, they know what's going on. They're, it reveals a lot about the spiritual level of what's happening in the battle between God and, and these fallen angels. They know his name and his station. They say son of God. They know who he is and what his position is. It says to torment us. They know the, the 
the power of God and they know the force of what God can do and they're aware of their coming doom. They say before the time. Demons actually know there is a time. They know God has a plan and they know that their defiance and disobedience has a season to it, that there is an end to what they get to do on this planet. So the demons, ironically enough, with this kind of question of what are you doing here, they actually answer the question the disciples asked back in 827. They say, who can this be? And here we see, well, it's the son of, son of God. That's who it can be. And so Matthew, with his notebook, just writes that down. Like, I got to put these two things right to it, next to each other because the demons actually answer the question that the disciples had. Faith isn't just believing that Jesus is God and that he has position and that there is a, God, a plan that God has. Faith has to do with trusting God with our life, that we don't have anything left to give. So it says, what do we have to do with you? Evil typically likes to be left alone. It loves the darkness. Evil doesn't like to be brought out into the light. So when you evil people are doing corrupt things, they like to do corrupt things in secret because they know it's corrupt. They know it's wrong. So one of those, in our personal lives, one of the things we can always say is, don't do anything you'd have a, be ashamed of having your mother know that you did. Like, pretend she's in the room. So when we're clicking mouse buttons and we're choosing which movies to go to and those sorts of things, God knows the heart. He knows what we're doing. And they're like, what do we want to have to do with you? I don't want Jesus in my life. I don't want to actually live a life where I'm there. So they cry out um, and they, do, they, they react in this kind of way. Notice that they don't call him Lord, where other people at the beginning of the chapter did. They just cry out. It doesn't say they cry out to Jesus. They just cry out. Uh, so they can't stop the, this situation, but they, um, they can't hide from it either. So there's, um, there's just a corrupt inside with these people. Now, a good way off from there, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, notice they don't call him Lord again, but they beg him. They're asking him for something, just like the leper asked him for something. If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, go. So just like the beginning of the chapter, one word is all it takes from Jesus. Total power and totally authority. Also, this is an odd thing to get our head around. He actually grants the request of demons. Like, there's a degree to where God knows what's happening at a level that demons have no idea what's going on. I'm pretty sure the demons had no idea this would be in the, the New Testament. <laughs> right? But Jesus does. God knows his plan. Um, God, there is a, a really... Um, likely, this, is, this herd of swine that's over there shouldn't be there in the first place. So it could be that Jesus has taken care of two corruptions with one move. In that, in that killing the swine is actually, this Jewish society, it's like cleaning out the temple. They shouldn't have these swine. They shouldn't be breeding them like this. But I'm sure there's money to be made in the swine. And that's a lot of commentators look at this and they're like, that herd of swine represented financial gain from selling pork to the Gentiles because they like their pork. So to have a herd of swine is a purely money-making operation outside of God's law. So when they came out, uh, verse 32 still, 
and they went into the herd of swine and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down to the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. That's what demons want. Animals have a lot less resistance to, to it than humans do, but their ultimate goal is to violently destroy and kill. It's, it's what they are up to. It's their plan and their agenda. Verse 33, then those who kept them fled. <laughs> so there were some pig keepers, pig herders, and they went away into the city and they told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Jesus is going to command them out and he does it with total authority, just like with leprosy. In verse 3, the leper is worshiping him first and asks for his will. The demons don't worship him at all and they ask for their own will and they beg him for things. The, the permit us to go, the demons totally understand authority, right? They get who has authority, just like the Roman centurion, but their hearts are sick, and the centurion's heart was pure. At the end of the chapter, these last stories are people that, are, that maybe look okay on the outside, though I don't think grave-living, demon-possessed people look too great, but their insides are the, the topic of the conversation. Their insides are sick. So are we... This idea that the demons even want to go into pigs to do destroy pigs, think of their resolution to torture things that God has created. Think of their dedication and commitment that they have to their Lord and Master to destroy. Well, if we can't destroy these men, can we please just destroy these pigs? Can we do something that we can bring back to our Master? On a convicting level, do we have that kind of commitment to our King when our plans don't pan out? Are we looking for alternatives so we still have something we can share and honor our king with? Like as a church, when we do an initiative, like are we, are we doing it because we love our Lord and we're commanded to do it? Or are we, are we doing it with that commitment that, you know, it doesn't matter if one person gets saved, I'll go after the one lost sheep. That's fine. In fact, interestingly, Jesus is actually doing that right now. He had multitudes back in Capernaum, but now he's talking to two men. He, he and his disciples outnumber the people that are going to get saved in this situation. And to Jesus and his love, that's totally worth it. He'll go after the one person. He'll go after the two people on the other side of the lake. This side trip that he's commanded is showing his disciples that that's what's important. If God commands you to go, just go. Even if it's for one person, that's fine. Do we have that resolution to heal as the demons have to destroy when we're blocked, do we look for another opening like they do? Like, there's things to learn here, which is why I think the story is in the Bible. Jesus, just one word. He's not quoting scripture. He's not praying. He just says, go. He does it with his own innate authority. He is God. He doesn't need to ask God for things. So when he does an exorcism, it's the word go, right? It happens, and he doesn't do it in anyone else's name. He does it in his own authority. Only the Messiah can do that. Which is, again, Matthew's point here with the whole book. They ran violently down the steep place, wanton destruction, chaos. And what's going to happen here is the city's then going to blame Jesus for this evil that just happened. And this is, we still do this today. Why does God allow sin? How can God possibly do that? Very baby faithers have an issue with that. And the people that reject God to start with, they go to this immediately. Well, how can a good God allow evil in the world? Well, that's a really immature perception of who does evil, right? The demons do the evil, and they're not mad at evil for evil's sake. They're mad at the God who has saved a human being 
and they're more concerned about their pigs that are worth money than they are about these people that they were allowing to live in a graveyard. Think of the sickness of this town to just have that happening right outside their town. Think of the sickness of the nature of these hateful demons. They, they put up a fight to do these things. The thief doesn't come to steal except to steal, kill, and destroy. And I've come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Jesus gives these two men a second chance, and the town cares more about their pigs. The sickness here is, yes, the demons, but the second part of this story, it's also about this city. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart the region. This is the same way that the demons begged Jesus to let them depart into the pigs. And they're saying, we want Jesus out of here. We don't, you don't want the demons out of here. You want Jesus out of here. So at the end of this passage, we see that there are multitudes that want to follow Jesus, people that enthusiastically say they will but don't, people that have excuses why they, they don't and don't, and then people who actually reject Jesus. That's four groups of people. And these people just want Jesus out of their life. And here's the Wonder, in every story in this chapter, Jesus grants the requests that people make. And in this last final one on the evil side of the spectrum, he grants their requests too. And he says, okay, you don't want me to go, I'll go. And that's the very, like, he departs and he leaves. So here's an entire town that just said goodbye to the incarnate God of the universe walking through their town, healing people of demons, and they just kicked him out. There's no excuse at that point. When you see the power of Jesus and recognize what he's done, there's a response that needs to happen. You either follow him in obedience, you make excuses why you don't, you, you say that you will but you don't, or you actually reject him just like the demons do. This shows a sickness of spirit here that parallels the sickness of leprosy in the body. What leprosy is to the body, this attitude is to the spirit for this town. He's rejected then not because God doesn't love these people. He went over to these people. He's rejected because they're sick in the heart and they've hardened themselves against God. And this is the condemnation, John 3, 19, that the light, ha that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and doesn't come into the light because they like to hide, lest his deeds should be exposed. All right, at some point spiritually, you're like, Lord, I don't care if my deeds are exposed. My deeds have led me to a graveyard. I'll take you over the graveyard. And as with, so this parallels both in a, in a rainbow-shaped parallel, like a chiasm, but there's other pieces with Matthew here too. The demon-possessed men, we don't hear anything from them, just like we really didn't hear anything from Peter's mother-in-law, right? Jesus is a gentleman, and he saves, and, and he knows the hearts of people. And this whole trip was really for these two guys. Just two souls outside of the multitude. The multitude can do what they want in verse 1. They came out to follow him. Verse 34, the multitude asks him to leave. Right? So the multitude goes either way. The mob goes either direction. So, you know, you look at that, that connection between verse 1, verse 32, and the two reactions of the multitude. We can see that through the whole book. The leper has an earthly infection of, uh, that can be seen as spiritual sin. The demons have a spiritual infection that's affected their bodies. The centurion is an image of authority in the world that understands authority spiritually. The wind and the waves 
our actual authority of the spiritual world that recognize the incarnate authority of God. There is a healing, loving family with Peter and his mom. There is a not serving, loving family situation with the guy who, um, you know, has a, a family that's a dead family. So th there's a balance in issues of the family that Jesus has to come first and then Jesus will heal your mother-in-law. But when Jesus doesn't come first, then let the bed dead bury the dead. They're not under his protection. This town of Gergesenes is not under his protection. He gives free healing to all, everybody and anyone, verse 16, verse 18. Um, but then he says to the one guy, there's a cost to being a disciple. If you want to follow me, I don't have a home to live in. So right in the middle of all of that chiastic balance or paralleling is the verse, he himself took our affirmities and bore our sicknesses. Jesus came to deal with this, with everything. Leprosy, demon possession, you know, fevers, illnesses. He's here to deal with all of it. The only thing that's needed from us is faith and trust that he'll do it. So Matthew is really intent intentional. He's a deliberate genius in his writing. He's laying out a very clear message to the Jewish people. Jesus not only healed, but he took care of six spirits. In fact, the spiritual realm was more important to Jesus than the physical realm. And, and when we get into the next chapter, he's going to make that point even stronger. In this chapter, the key point is here, he said he was king and messiah, and now he is acting like a king and claiming authority over the winds and seas, over fever, over sicknesses, over leprosy, over demon-possessed people. He's actually acting and exhibiting the authority of a king. Secondary point I think Matthew's making, discipleship is so precious. It is the narrow way and it's costly. It costs us giving up our will and our pride in order to follow Jesus. It costs our herd of pig-making moneymakers. It costs having a nice bed to sleep in. There's an expense to it. And he's, Jesus It doesn't only speak with authority, he acts with authority too. If he's a sham, then this chapter wouldn't be here. Right? Jesus would just be all words. And you'd hear the Sermon on the Mount and think, what the Sermon on the Mount and think, what a great sermon. But he's not all words. He's talk too. If he's God, then this chapter has to be here. Because he didn't just say it, he did it. Matthew 16, 25. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever desires to lose his life for my name's sake will find it. That's going to be one of the principal ideas of the book of Matthew. So we get outcast Jews, lepers. We get prominent Gentiles. We get family members, mother-in-laws. We get followers. We get demon-possessed. We get greedy people that care more about their pigs than humans. All of them are invited to the kingdom. There are lots of ways that faith can manifest. We can have a request for faith in the pain of leprosy, a request in faith in privilege. No request at all, but Jesus just being kind to a mother-in-law. He's got responses to the masses that differ, and he's got a love for the person in the graveyard who doesn't ask for anything, right? And even the demon he grants and lets them go do what they're going to do. Jesus' touch is different for every person, but the salvation Jesus offers is identical. The kingdom is the kingdom. The way in which Jesus handles each individual is totally unique. And I don't know how Jesus is talking to you, but he's not coming to condemn you and give you shame, right? That's not the point with the people that he pushes away. 
He's coming to give you truth, and through that truth, you can be saved. I'll, let, I'll just let the Bible say it. John 3, 17 and 18, right after John 3, 16. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Demons know that he's the Son of God, but to believe in someone is the same Greek word for trust and faith. It is to believe that he can be in charge of your life. If you can get your head around that, you're all, there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation for the centurion, for the leper, for a mother-in-law. There's no condemnation even when Jesus tells truth to the scribe and when he tells truth to the, the person who has to go take care of his dad. He just speaks truth at him. It's not condemning. He's just saying, if you want to follow me, follow me. But if you don't, I'm a gentleman. I'm not going to sit in your town if you don't want me here. I'm not going to invade your life if you don't want me to. If you want me, he's there instantly. With a word, he's healing the centurion's servant. With a word. It's instant and immediate. But if you don't want Jesus in your life, you still got stuff you're holding on to. He doesn't even want you in the boat. Go away. Don't pretend that you're in the kingdom when you're not. And it's all about our heart and our faith and if we believe in him or not. It's really simple. Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you for this chapter. Lord, help us not just to be readers of the word, but doers. Lord, I, I'm so convicted by the idea that you want to show us your heart and you want to love us in ways that we don't even understand. Lord, your healing is instant and immediate when you want it to be. But Lord, we submit to your will. We worship you either way. Lord, we're not just talking about physical infirmities and sicknesses here. We know you can heal those. And for those of us that have them or know people that do, Lord, we ask for that healing, but we also want your will more than the healing. We want your will to be done. If you're calling somebody home, Lord, we just pray that you do it quickly. If you want somebody to learn something in their infirmity, we pray that they learn it quickly. Lord, if you want to heal people to magnify your kingdom, we want to do it and we will magnify and we will, we will tell everyone we know. Lord, we want to see that you can do a work in our lives spiritually more than physically. Lord, help us to be in the first part of the chapter and not the second part of the chapter. <laughs> help us to be folks, Lord, that just hear your word and obey it. We see what you have to say in the Bible, we just do it. And Lord, we do it in humility and in grace. And Lord, we do it by saying, Lord, you first. Whatever you command, we'll do. Whatever you desire, we'll follow. And help us to not do that rashly or in, in enthusiasm, but to do it with our heart, our mind, and our soul. To have counted the cost and weighed it out that following you has a price. That following you, Lord, might mean that we go to a graveyard to save one or two guys. But we have to go where dead people are sometimes to follow you, and you command us to do that. Sometimes you command us to go home and be with our mother-in-law and to take care of the people we love. Lord, we don't know where you're commanding us to go but we want to hear it and we want to do it and to do it without hesitation, Lord, without looking back, without having excuses. Lord, there's nothing in this world that demands on us more than you do because you're our Lord, nobody else. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.